Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, a place for interdisciplinary conversations in the broad world of business research. My name is Andrew Jennings, and it's my pleasure to be your host. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, leave a rating and let other people know about the show, too. And if you have ideas for the show, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. All right, time for the episode. Our guest today is Michael Gutentag, professor of law at Loyola Marymount University Law School. We'll be discussing his paper, What Information is Worth and Why It Matters, which will be published as a chapter in a forthcoming research handbook on insider trading that's being edited by Stephen Bainbridge of UCLA. I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Mike, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Such a pleasure to be here, Andrew. I don't know what the equivalent is for a podcast, but a longtime listener, first time caller slash podcaster. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Great to have you call into the show. And I'd like to talk today about insider trading. Uh, it's the subject of your paper and the subject of this forthcoming second edition of the Insider Trading Research Handbook that Steve Bainbridge is editing. This is a topic that a lot of people might think that they know something about that may be right or wrong, depending on the individual. But I wondered if you could start our conversation by just introducing what is insider trading? What are the traditional economic rationales for why we forbid it? And are there perhaps any countervailing economic arguments for why insider trading should be allowed or even encouraged? It might be a good thing to have as opposed to a bad thing. Okay. There's been a lot of work on insider trading. That's a good question. And I will try and give a, a brief answer that does some justice to all the research that's been done. So I think of insider trading as trading on inside information, which may not seem like it helps, but I do think that helps. So what do we mean by inside information? There are two defining features to my mind of inside information. One, most everyone agrees on, which is that it is, to use the technical term, material non-public information. Material means that it is information that, if it were publicly known or when it becomes publicly known, will have a significant impact on the share price of the affected companies. Non-public just means that not everybody knows it, only a select group of people know it. So that's the material non-public aspect of inside information. The other was slightly more controversial or less clear aspect of what constitutes inside information is its source. Where did it come from? You can tell by the name, inside information. The sense is usually it comes from like within an organization, inside an organization. So it's information that only a few privileged people have access to because they're inside the organization. And so the idea is if you trade on this information that's really valuable that you got from inside the organization that you're part of, let's say, then you're engaging in insider trading. Now, initially people thought, gosh, this sounds like an awful thing. It's unfair. How can I ever compete with someone who has access to this inside information? But it was the brilliance of Henry Manny to really sort of put the economics of insider trading under a microscope. And Henry Manny came up 
and realize, you know what? The case for an economic prohibition, the case for a prohibition against insider trading is more complicated than you might expect when you look at it from just a strictly economic perspective. Manny realized there might actually be some good things about allowing insider trading. He focused on two positives of allowing insider trading. One was that it might be an effective compensation scheme. It might encourage insiders to act in ways that work to the best interest of the shareholders. Now, I would say the more current thinking is that allowing insider trading is not a particularly good compensation scheme. The second benefit I think most people still realize as a gain from allowing insider trading, which is that share prices will be more accurate. If people with this inside information trade, then share prices will come closer reflecting the true value of a company. There are work clearly costs of insider trading as well, and Manny recognized that, but it's hard to quantify those costs. People don't like losing. And if you're trading with someone with inside information, you're going to lose. And people will take countermeasures to prevent those losses. And so the downside of allowing insider trading, according to this analysis, is that insider trading will make investors less willing to invest in companies and will make people who make markets in trading securities demand higher returns because they might be trading with people who have inside information. So the costs of insider trading come in terms of potentially a decrease in confidence in the markets and increase in spreads. So Manny really threw down the gauntlet and said, look, this could be a good or a bad thing from a economic perspective. But overall, it's unclear how these costs and benefits offset each other. And I think that's where we are today in the economic analysis of insider trading. There's one caveat, which is that even though it looks like from this microeconomic perspective, insider trading has both costs and benefits, and it's hard to weigh those costs against the benefits. When you look around the world, what we see is once jurisdictions start enforcing insider trading laws, the cost of capital in a jurisdiction goes down. So in other words, there appear to be substantial real benefits from imposing a prohibition against insider trading. So I hope that helps summarize where we are in terms of the economic analysis of insider trading. Thank you. I think that's a great overview of some of the outstanding economic, microeconomic questions around whether insider trading is a net social benefit or cost. And you certainly identified some of the traditional costs that the literature is thinking about in terms of lack of confidence in the markets, perhaps driving some weariness on the part of traders from participating in the markets. In this paper, you identify some additional social cost. And in reading the paper, I found myself thinking about an episode of King of the Hill. I've been watching the, the old TV show King of the Hill recently from the start to the end. And I recently saw an episode about Hank Hill, who, if listeners are familiar with the show, is famously proud of being a propane salesman and also a salesman of propane accessories. 
And there's an episode in which his propane company uh, gets into a price war with other local propane companies. Hank Hill assembles some of the leaders of those companies together, explains to them that they're engaged in ruinous competition and wouldn't things just be better if they all worked together. Of course, Hank was shocked uh, when he was later accused of orchestrating an antitrust conspiracy, because for him, it's really just about propane and his love of propane. But that brings us to a, a trope of perhaps competition theory, which is this concept of ruinous competition. And generally, we might turn a, an eye away from those claims of ruinous competition in favor of robust competition. But you're talking this paper about ruinous competition in the context of insider trading and the possibility for competition not to be a good thing at all times, to be potentially destructive in social cost terms. This is central to how you're framing insider trading within this paper. So I wondered if you could walk us through just how competition could sometimes be a bad thing on net for society, especially in the light of the fact that we're usually told and we usually think about competition as being a good thing that we should want more of. The best example I know of that illustrates how competition can be a bad thing still comes from Richard Posner in his economic analysis of the law. So some of your listeners may be familiar with this example, and I apologize, but let me walk through the example because it does a really nice job of showing how there can be very much a problem, too much competition from a strictly economic perspective. So Posner hypothesizes that goods are lost at sea that are worth $1,000. And then he also hypothesizes that it costs $250 to go find these lost goods. Okay, so that's goods lost worth $1,000, $250 to rescue them. We should see a profit of $750. Okay, now what would we do? We introduce competition. And does the economics get better or worse from a social welfare perspective? It actually gets much worse because what happens when we introduce competition? The prize is worth $1,000 and it only costs $250 to capture that prize. How many ships should reasonably try and capture the prize? The answer is four, right? Because if there are four ships, the odds of capturing the prize, we'll say it's one in four, which is $250. That's my cost of rescue. Four ships will end up, if we allow competition, racing around against each other, trying to find that treasure. One will find the treasure. And what will the net social result be? The net social result will be that we have three extra ships looking around to find that treasure and their efforts are wasted. There's actually a way to solve this problem. And Posner points to the law as a solution to this problem. Posner says the problem is we're letting the successful salvager to keep the full thousand dollar value. Why don't we just make the rule that you only get to keep $250 and the problem is solved. Only one ship will go out and search for the lost goods. There's an example where there's a prize and the prize attracts too much competition. So that is not the example that they introduced you to in Microeconomics 101. And this, in my mind, is really 
a failing of microeconomics because it turns out that the Adam Smith story of competition being a good thing is actually really very much just a special case. It's actually an unusual situation where you do not have this wasteful competition problem. You need to have special circumstances. Otherwise, competition will frequently waste resources. The term economists like to use is rent dissipation. So wherever there is a quote rent, which is say these surpluses around, there's competition and competition wastes resources. I've argued elsewhere that this is a problem that the law is good at addressing, but that legal scholars have probably following from their miseducation in microeconomics classes have not spent enough time focusing on. I should try and understand why economists ignore this problem or minimize this problem. Part of it was there was the marginalist revolution, which really focused on moving economics to the analysis of marginal costs and benefits. And that tends to ignore this problem. And maybe it's a social phenomenon. Gordon Gecko famously said in fiction, greed is good. And they're saying coherent and consistent with the idea that competition greed is always a good thing. Unfortunately, there are a lot of economic situations where that rule does not apply, where the better solution is actually cooperation rather than competition as a way to avoid rent dissipation. Part of the work you're doing here is pointing out that under certain conditions, a competition could be socially undesirable. And you give this apt example of kind of a maritime salvage uh, scenario. But this is, of course, a paper about insider trading. So I wondered if you could talk to us about how to extend that point to insider trading. How is it that efforts that insider traders engage in might be on that socially costly? And where does that point perhaps fit into or diverge from existing justifications for why we prohibit insider trading? Let me take the second part of that first. Maybe I'm not a completely objective reader of the literature, but I find that the absence of concern about this problem that shows up in introductory microeconomics classes is also, there's also an absence of awareness of this problem in the insider trading literature generally. I think this is this possibility of too much competition, rent dissipation, wasteful competition has not received the attention it deserves in the insider trading scholarship to date. In fact, the conclusion of my paper is that this alone is compelling reason to outlaw insider trading, but I presume we'll get there. So why does this problem of too much competition show up, especially in the context of insider trading? The problem of too much competition is exacerbated when there's a mismatch between the private gains that people can realize, which create an incentive to compete, and the social benefits of an activity. In the case of the Posner example, the private gains were potentially $1,000 in finding the lost goods, but the social benefits 
were not a thousand dollars because the cost to rescue was only $250. In the insider trading context, we have this problem to the extreme. Suppose I work within a company and I know what the company's earnings that are going to be announced tomorrow will be. I can make a lot of money with that information. I can trade, I can buy options, assuming it's legal, of course. I can do a lots of things with that information that are hugely profitable. Then the question is, we see those rich private gains in the context of insider trading. In that particular scenario, what are the social benefits? We can actually do the calculation. What are the social benefits? Henry Manny tells us that insider trading, most importantly, helps share prices be more accurate. Great. I trade a day before the announcement. Share prices are more accurate a day earlier. The company could have just released the information a day earlier. Is the world really a better place because share prices are more accurate one day earlier? And does that social benefit in any way compare to the huge private rewards I can realize? Jack Hirschleifer, an economist, talked about the idea of something called foreknowledge, where you have information about an event that will become public anyway. And insider trading, at least in certain circumstances, is the quintessential example of foreknowledge. There's no social benefit from the information being made available to the market in by whatever means a day earlier as compared to the private gains that are possible. The title of your paper is eye-catching in a way because it suggests that it might have an answer to the question, what is inside information worth? And your paper actually talks about this or provides an answer that isn't generic in an essence, but is actually quite specific. You do a calculation of how valuable inside information is within the U.S. securities markets. Could you walk us through how you went about constructing that estimate? And what is the estimate? How valuable is inside information? What is it worth in this country and its public capital markets? The point of this chapter was to move beyond my theoretical concern about people overlooking this wasteful competition problem and actually look at the numbers, try and quantify how big the private rewards from access to inside information might be and how they compare with the social benefits. The way I carried out the analysis was I tried to get estimates as to how valuable information about various events might be. For instance, suppose I had information about mergers and acquisitions announcement that was going to come out in the next day or a week. Suppose I had information about an earnings announcement. How valuable would that information be? We have some evidence about this because people who get convicted of insider trading, some financial economists have gone back and looked and said, how much did they earn? How much was it worth? So I wanted to look at this at a, from a market-wide perspective. And I won't go through all the different components I looked at. Let me just use an example. The value of information about an upcoming earnings announcement. 
Every quarter, com- public companies are required to announce how much money they earn. And sometimes they tell the market that they earned exactly what the market expected they were going to earn. And the stock price generally doesn't move that much. Other times there are earnings surprises. Sometimes it turns out we had a really great quarter and we post our earnings numbers and our stock price goes way up. Or we had a really bad quarter and our stock price goes down. So there are earnings surprises. And I cite a study that looked at, on average, how valuable, how much of an impact on share price does an earnings release have? And the answer is when you average out those earnings surprises with situations where there's a lot of big effect, on average, an earnings announcement will move a share price 3%. So then we can use that estimate. And that's a conservative estimate. Other estimates are higher. We can use that to figure out how valuable would it be to have inside information or advanced information about every earnings announcement. 3% for a particular earnings announcement, the market cap in the United States of equity securities is at around, what, $40 trillion. If I know the earnings announcements each of those companies is going to make, I, at least in theory, could buy in advance and get a fixed guarantee 3% return on that. What's 3% of $40 trillion? 1.2 1.2 trillion. But that's only one earnings announcement a year. There are four. So if I had all the information, and this is just the day before, if I had all the information about upcoming earnings announcements the day before the earnings were actually announced, my potential profit just from that particular subset of inside information is like, $5 trillion. These are insane numbers. They're not completely theoretical, right? So there were hackers from Eastern Europe were able to get access to earnings releases for a select group of companies, and they made $100 million trading on that information. So that's the prize. We can estimate the value. And that is a phenomenal prize, a $5 trillion prize. That's more than the federal government spends in a year. The lure, the prize is quite dramatic. Now, let's go to another question, which is the social benefit. And I take it as a reasonable premise that the social benefit is minimal. So we've got a huge enticement with little social benefit if we allow people to trade on inside information about earnings. You may say that's the value of the prize. But will people really spend that much in actual resources? And I don't know. What would you do? Let's say insider trading is legal. You would certainly take all your friends who work at companies out to dinner before earnings announcement, but that's not that expensive. But why wouldn't you just hear all those ships circling around in the Posner example, circling around trying to get this rich treasure? I could see a bunch of spy companies and other technologies trying to get this information. And in fact, we see when it comes to high-frequency trading, we've seen companies spend tens of millions of dollars easily to try and get information a millisecond before other companies. One could imagine with such a rich prize that actual resources 
would be significantly invested. And what is the social value of that investment? Pretty close to zero. It turns out that earnings are probably the biggest opportunity. Now, there may be some limitations because of liquidity constraints in certain stocks to capture that full $5 trillion value. But there are other sources of inside information, obviously. The mergers and acquisitions transactions, there's discoveries, innovations, clinical trials that you fail and that you succeed in, and so on. These are really big numbers that are created by the opportunity to trade on inside information. I'd like to pull together some of the threads we've talked about from this paper. Could you talk about what this means for some of the normative or pragmatic bases for U.S. insider trading prohibition? And does your paper point to perhaps a need for a more coherent policy? Are there any jurisdictions out there that have a policy against insider trading that is perhaps more coherent than what we have in the United States? We have to understand what we do in the United States. What we do in the United States does not rely on an economic analysis of the costs and benefits of insider trading. We have a regime in the United States that looks primarily to the source of the information and whether the information was garnered by some kind of fraudulent or deceptive manner. And so that's the system we have in the U.S. What that means is we spend resources trying to determine and a lot of doctrinal effort trying to clarify when information is gained in a way that involves deception. Now that does, as it turns out, prohibit a lot of insider trading, but it's not an economically based approach. My analysis says there actually is a compelling economic reason to outlaw insider trading. And if we accept this, then we have a different rationale and therefore a different regime in the United States that we should move to. If my analysis is correct, that we have a policy reason to outlaw insider trading for whole categories of information. For instance, why would we allow people to trade in the day or days or weeks ahead of an earnings announcement based on information about the earnings, the forthcoming earnings, when we know there'll be no real social gain from that and a potentially substantial waste of resources? What would a more coherent policy look like? We actually have some precedent for what a more coherent policy would look like. One rule that might make sense is a rule that's extension and broader application of a prohibition we already have in place for trading when in possession of information about an upcoming tender off. The idea would be that we could implement a rule that defines certain categories of inside information, which if you're in possession of, you simply cannot trade. That would be such a cleaner rule than the current regime in the United States. We could also potentially follow the approach in Europe, which focuses attention on how precise the information you have. As the wonderful insider trading scholar Donna Nagy said to me, 
the European system says, if you have the really good stuff, then you really shouldn't be trading. And that regime also makes a lot of sense if my economic analysis is correct. So if my economic analysis is correct, we really need to make a wholesale change. And the only way to do that is with federal legislation. And not federal legislation that redefines the personal benefit test or does minor things like that. But federal legislation that really steps in and says, you know what, there is an economic reason we don't want insider trading and we're going to implement a federal prohibition on insider trading. Clearly, there will be some challenging cases. Did the person know that what they had was inside information as defined by the statute and so on? But we already are in a situation now where we have a lot of challenging cases. And I don't think the law is well designed to address the fundamental economic problem created by allowing insider trading. So yeah, my hope is that we can move forward in a new comprehensive way. And I'm starting to reach out to some folks in Congress because I want to make this happen. What are some key takeaways you'd like listeners to have from the paper and from this interview? Let me start with the most general, which is the problem of wasteful competition, rent dissipation. It shows up in markets much more often than is given attention to. And it's a problem that the law is good at solving. It's a longstanding problem that law has been good at solving and that we could all spend more time focusing on. So I think this is the tip of the iceberg in terms of the analytic possibilities and richness of exploring this problem and how the law can address it. And then more pragmatically, when you see just how significant the mismatches between private benefits and social gains for trading on at least some categories or some types of inside information, it should be patently clear that we should simply outlaw trading on those kinds of inside information. Now, I know this is a change for the U.S. regime, but I think it's really going to be a change for the better in the long run. And I hope we can get there. Our guest today has been Michael Gutentag, professor at Loyola Marymount University Law School. We've discussed his paper, What Inside Information is Worth and Why It Matters, which will be published as a chapter in a forthcoming research handbook on insider trading, be edited by Stephen Bainbridge of UCLA. I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Mike, thanks for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. What a pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, rate the show, and let other people know about it too. If you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.